Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And here is an orientation to today's episode. The commercial landscape of sleep tracking technology has exploded over the recent decade, providing accessible and affordable tools that have potentially great promise for clinic, research, and personal use. Identifying their capabilities and limitations through evaluation studies is critical for determining their role for use across these domains. The initial models of commercially available sleep tracking technologies demonstrated relatively poor ability to quantify and classify sleep relative to the gold standard polysomnography. Hardware advancements, such as the inclusion of sensors to capture additional biosignals beyond movement, have dramatically enhanced the ability of these devices as sleep tracking tools. Similarly, software advancement through leverage of complex machine learning algorithms have also seemingly contributed to major performance improvement, whereby the majority of newer commercially available sleep tracking devices demonstrate performance largely comparable to traditionally employed scientific devices. A major challenge for researchers is the constantly evolving landscape with new hardware and software seemingly emerging overnight. As such, there is a constant need from the research community to help clarify the abilities and thus the role of emerging novel technology as well as next generation models of existing devices. This episode is going to focus on the investigation, performance of a multi-sensor smart ring to evaluate sleep, in-lab and home-based evaluation of generalized and personalized algorithms which was published in June 2022 in the journal Sleep. Our guest today, Dr. Michael Grandner, will guide us through the study which evaluated a novel commercially available sleep tracking device known as the Happy Ring. Importantly, this investigation not only evaluated the general capabilities of the Happy Ring, but also assessed whether integrating personalization into the device's algorithm could improve device performance. It is this key piece of innovation that distinguishes the Happy Ring as the overwhelming majority of measurement tools still employ a generalized, one-size-fits-all approach that is likely to degrade performance abilities. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Michael Grandner. Dr. Grandner is the Director of Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona, Associate Professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Medicine in the College of Medicine, Associate Professor of Psychology in the College of Science, Associate Professor of Nutritional Sciences in the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences, and Associate Professor of Clinical Translational Science. He is a licensed psychologist and certified in behavioral sleep medicine by the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a diplomat in behavioral sleep medicine by the Board of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. He directs the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at the University of Arizona. He is a member of the Sarver Heart Center, the Hispanic Center of Excellence, and a faculty member of the Graduate Interdisciplinary Programs in Neuroscience and Physiological Sciences. 
His research focuses on how sleep and sleep-related behaviors are related to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, neurocognitive functioning, mental health, and longevity. Specific areas of focus include 1. Downstream cardiovascular, metabolic, and behavioral health outcomes associated with insufficient sleep. 2. Upstream social, behavioral, and biological determinants of insufficient sleep. And 3. Development and implementation of behavioral interventions for sleep as a domain of health behavior. Dr. Grandner has published over 250 articles and chapters on issues relating to sleep and health, is associated editor of the Journal of Sleep Health, and acts on the editorial boards for Sleep, Sleep Medicine, Journal of Sleep Research, Behavioral Sleep Medicine, and Frontiers in Neuroscience, Sleep and Circadian Rhythms. He serves on both the Mental Health Task Force and the Sleep and Wellness Task Force for the NCAA, was a member of the Mental Health Consensus Conference of the International Olympic Committee, and has partnered with a number of athletic, health, and corporate organizations. He is a regular lecturer on topics related to sleep and health for students, patients, corporations, and athletes, has been invited multiple times to the National Institutes of Health, and has presented for the U.S. Congress twice. His research has been profiled in hundreds of national and international news outlets, TV programs, magazines, and newspapers. Needless to say, listeners, Dr. Grander is basically superhuman, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to bring his wisdom, experience, and personality to this platform. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Michael Grander unpacking the recent publication in Sleep entitled Performance of a Multisensor Smart Ring to Evaluate Sleep in-lab and home-based evaluation of generalized and personalized algorithms. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Michael Grandner, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss your research. Um, yeah, thanks for having to see me. You. It's always great to have you in my life, uh, whether that be for the SRS <laughs> podcast or my neediness in general for all other things, research and professional development. Um, great to see you back in your office space, too. I know listeners can't see that, but uh, how are things out there in Tucson? Great. You know, I mean, the weather's nice, but that's Tucson. No, it, it's we've we've slowly transitioned back. Um, many other people transitioned earlier than us, but during the pandemic, we had to convert all of our studies to be pandemic compatible. So when everyone started coming back, we didn't really have a reason to have to. So and, and now we have, you know, we have members of our lab who aren't even always here in person anyway. So we've had to be flexible, but it's time. And, and now I'm back the majority of the time in person. Fantastic. And it has been a, I would say, challenging and strange experience, like reintegrating into the life yeah. I once had. Uh, we have a, a lunch and learn as part of our psychology department or clinical area group. And we had our first one this past Monday and it requires me to go on campus now when it was fully What's remote that? in the past. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I had such dissonance because being a later stage graduate student, I should sit in my office space and do research. And I was like, I don't want to go on campus. Like that's where infections happen. Or why would I want to do that? <laughs> right. And then you sit in a room with people and you realize, Oh, this is better. We have the yeah. human connection. We can actually be more efficient in our communications. Um, so I'm trying to get back into the swing of things as well. Yeah, I don't want to be that, that you know, the guy who says everyone needs to come back in the office because it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like everyone's actually working when time on, you know, time on task does not correlate with productivity and time at your desk less, even less so. 
Um, and sometimes it, it negatively correlates, but th there really is, you know, at the end of the day, for good or for bad, a lot of this work is about people and interactions and we've missed a lot. And, and just because it's hard to describe the benefits of being in person on paper, um, at least for the work that we do, I feel like it's, I've really benefited a lot from, from sort of reintegrating while still trying to keep what we learned. I mean, if, the, if people can't attend a meeting in person, fine, they can zoom in as long as most of the people are there. And if it's not every day, it's fine. You know, if someone's traveling or whatever, or, um, you know, maybe you don't have to be in every day, but you at least have hours that are reliable so we could find you at your desk if you need it, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, the whole reintegration process, this is a whole natural experiment we've all, none of us consented to, but we're all sort of participants in. Wait, did I hear you correctly in saying that I don't have to sit at my desk the entire day if I'm not being productive and it may actually be better for me to step away, clear my head and maybe come back later? <laughs> I'm just saying I believe in data, you know, I, I like in clinic and in research and in my life in general, like I, I, I try and live by the data. The data show that time on task does not equal productivity and neither does time at desk. So I would be I would be very hypocritical if I if I enforced that. Well, uh, we've already, I think, ruffled some feathers with the capitalistic society <laughs> uh, and we may we may ruffle some more feathers because it's the All two right. of us together. Know, uh, but it always is. A, <laughs> it always is a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, it is a topic that I think both of you and I formulated a relationship around in the first place. And so we'll do our best to stay on track and not turn this into an encyclopedia of commercially available sleep tracking technology here. <laughs> okay. um, to before kind of this interview portion, Dr. Grandner, I um, oriented the listeners a little bit to you with a biography. Uh, thank you for providing, by the way. Um, you're a man who doesn't really need a ton of introductions, but I always think it's fun. Personally, I get yeah. off on it. Just hearing the stories of how you ended yeah. up in sleep itself. How did that happen? So I've always been interested in sleep. I actually thought I came into sleep through dreams. I thought they were the coolest thing ever. And I learned as much about them as I could. And that learning, like reading about dreams got me in, got me to inadvertently also learn about how sleep stages work and, and I thought, I always thought that was sort of just cool to learn about. And then when I was in college, um, uh, I had a friend who got a job as a tech at the sleep lab and, and I was just like, wait, we have a sleep lab. How did I not know this? Like, this is a thing. And, and it turns out she's like, yeah, they just, they just recently opened it up. And the guy who like, is one of the people who runs it, he's going to be teaching a course, um, teaching an undergraduate course. You should totally take it. I'm like, dude, I'm totally there. Like I'm. And, and so that was, you know, Michael Perlis's undergraduate sleep course. And how lucky was I that, you know, I got one of the best teachers in all of, in the history of sleep medicine to teach his first undergraduate course and sitting there in the room. Uh, it was like, it was just like a magical time. And, and I was, I didn't realize this was like a thing you could be. And then, so I came up to him after, at the end of the, after the final, I'm like, can I volunteer in your lab? And he's like, well, I don't really have much in the way of money. And I said, that's okay. I have a job at the school bookstore. Like I just want to volunteer in the lab. And he's like, great. That's my price. That was his line. That's my price. Nothing. So 
I started volunteering the lab, turned into an independent study, turned into an honors thesis. And he's like, you know, you should really go to grad school. And I'm like, how do I do that? And so then the rest or the rest is history. Well, I guess we can thank and blame Dr. Perlis for <laughs> unleashing you on our field. Um, you know, it's as you were sharing that, and I know listeners, if there are those out there who have listened to all the episodes, are probably sick of me sharing my own story. But I heard such similarity because I actually was fascinated with the dreams and subconscious and was like, well, sleep and sleep disorders. Who is this Richard Bootson guy? And obviously, in <laughs> hindsight, how lucky was I? Uh, and I think like Spencer Dawson was one of the TAs in my lab at wow. that time, or in the class that time. So, you know, it's just one of those things that the field is so interconnected and it's a beautiful thing. And uh, we're lucky to have you. So thank you for choosing this as your vocation. And you've done such a <laughs> remarkable job, not just focusing on sleep, but it's connection to other domains of health, which I just think is so remarkable because I view sleep. I used to think it was one of the pillars of health. And now I view it as the foundation that the rest of the pillars of health rest upon. Uh, and I still don't think our society understands that, but you are one who kind of champions that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so finally, it, so I, I have to give credit um, to Nirav Patel. So when I was a postdoc, um, Nirav had just finished his um, fellowship at Penn and was new junior faculty there finishing up an MPH. And he's the one who really helped me articulate this because he would talk about um, the phrase he would use was was sleep is sleep is a biological imperative. He, he had he was had this, his English accent and it sounds much better when he said it. Um, sleep is a biological imperative, and the degree to which that's a really profound statement. It took me a while to figure out why that was absolutely profound and. Um, and it's really said that like, he passed away very suddenly and, and which is, you know, which is why the, the sleep and health book is dedicated to him because we were supposed to write it together and, and edit it together. But I always remember him saying that when you think about it, what are the biological requirements for human life? You know, um, food, water, sleep, maybe shelter, but that's kind of it. And air, air, we need to breathe air. That's a requirement. I mean, and just this whole idea that that's the company sleep is in. But like, you know, our society devalues sleep. It doesn't devalue air. Like our society doesn't devalue clean water. Well, a little bit maybe. You know, it definitely devalues healthy food. You know, so sleep isn't alone. Um, but it really does. And it's because it, it, and it's not because of what sleep is. It's because of what our culture is. And because humans are so adaptable, like we have, we have like this arrogance that like the world, the rules don't apply to us. And so, because I often, you know, we find ways around them and, but that's what sleep is. So, so I, I like saying that, you know, when reporters ask me, is it, it's true. Like we, you know, we still spend about a third of our lives sleeping. We still don't know why we sleep because every sleep researcher answers this question. Why do we sleep? Well, we still don't know exactly why we sleep. Like, that's a dumb answer. That's like a scientist answer where like scientists can't actually, you know, we, we can't definitively say anything, but I actually think like, that's actually incorrect. That's factually incorrect. We do know why we sleep. We sleep because we have to, because it's a foundational part of our biology. It's not a coincidence that we all sleep every day. It's not like a, oops, like, how did I figure this out? Like it's, it's no, 
we're required to biologically. That's why we do it. We don't do it because we love it so much. We do it because we have to. What the, what the reporters are asking, though, is what are all the different things that sleep does? What are all the functions of sleep? Like, name them all. I don't know. What are all the functions of hair cells? Like, can we name them all? No, we're not even there yet. For you know, So much less something as complicated as sleep. What are all the functions of being awake? Like, no one asks that question. And the thing is, it's silly. It's There's lots of things that happen during sleep, and it's because it's been there since the beginning. Um, you know, this is, humans didn't discover sleep. You know, this, this goes all the way back because sleep is part of, I think one person who I think put this really well was Garrett Kenyon. I th- I'm, I, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering his name correctly. He's the guy who's the computer scientist who did the study looking at um, uh, an AI program uh, and teaching it to sleep and it learned faster. And when I asked him what gave him the idea to do that, and you could on, on, on our lab's website, we, we, if you look through the archives of the talks in our seminar, you'll see his. It was awesome. But when I asked him, like, what gave him the idea to do that, I said, well, his son's a grad student and, and, and had asked him about his algorithm about learning. And, he's, and he said that if your algorithm doesn't sleep and it adapts to the and it's trying to learn an adaptation to the environment and it doesn't sleep, it's the wrong algorithm. And he's like, so that's what got me into looking at, at sleep as a, as a program. Um, and, and I think that he put it well. Sleep is part of how we adapt to our environment. Beautifully said. And the fact that it like generally goes against what we perceive as kind of evolutionary strategies, whether that be looking for a mate or looking for food, trying to find shelter, whatever it may be, I think highlights its import. The fact that yeah. every species does it, the fact that it's preserved against phylogeny and yet when you think about evolutionary pressures, it doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. That to me showcases it's important. You're right. Yeah. The reporters are looking for the 6,000 billion things that sleep does, but right. it, it does so much that it's a nonsensical question. It's, in yeah, some it's, ways. it's just, it's like, what are all the things that air breathing air does for your body? Well, what are all the different kinds of cells that use oxygen? List them all. Like all of them, like that, that's <laughs> it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and you're talking about these things like evolutionary pressures. Um, I think that there's one camp that says, well, if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to die. And then there's the other camp that says, well, okay, that sounds true, but you know, where's the evidence? Does, do we actually have evidence for that? And then there's the, the, the sleep scientists who will often say like, well, the reason we don't have evidence for that is if you stay awake long enough, you're going to fall asleep. And, and that's very similar to, and I don't really mean to be morbid because it's another biological imperative, but it's very similar to a drowning, where if you're underwater, you can hold your breath. You can hold it as long as you can hold it. But there will come a time that your brain knows that if you stop holding your breath and you breathe in, you will die because you will drown. But yet... There's only so long you can go before your brain is like, don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I have to. I, I have to take that breath, even though I know I'm going to, it's going to mean, it means that I'm probably going to drown. And that's what I think of whenever I hear about fall asleep crashes, where you can go so long without sleep. But eventually you're going to get to the point where your body's going to say, like, I actually don't care what you're doing right now. You're going to sleep 
whether you like it or not. You're going to take that breath even if you're underwater. You are going to you are going to become unconscious even if you are actively behind the wheel of a car in traffic. So when people say, you know, no one died from sleep deprivation, well, it wasn't because it wasn't like the Rekshoffen studies where all the thermal regulatory stuff went out of whack and then like organ failure and like no, they fell asleep. That's how they died. They fell asleep doing something they shouldn't they they couldn't fall asleep doing. That's how and so yeah, it it is a, it is a life or death issue. I don't know. It's the biological that. imperative, and I'm sure yes. that there are many military personnel out there that can think of their basic training and falling asleep standing up. We can try and psychologically override it only to a certain degree, and because it is a biological imperative. And uh, Michael, I think we could talk about that. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, for, forever. Uh, and uh, I would love to, but I have a more important <laughs> question. That I think every listener, any person in the field, wants to know Uh-oh. because. There's zero chance that you have free time, but if you were to find yourself with free time, what would you do? With free time, what would I do? A lot of people say sleep when you get when you ask that question. I actually I prioritize sleep, so I don't I don't need more. But if you're asking me if I had more free time, I'd I'd, uh, I'd pick up some of the hobbies that have have. Uh, fallen more by the wayside since kids you know i'd pick the guitar back up i'd pick the you know I, i'd start playing more i'd start uh, writing more but um that's me i mean well, i mean i wait the correct answer is i would write more grants uh and i would write more papers is that the correct answer absolutely i will clip out the earlier commentary <laughs> and just focus on what academia wants to hear um but i do think that synergistically aligns with our recent podcast guests and the SRS podcast is now formulating a band between uh, Diego Mazzacci <laughs> and Lisa Meltzer and Michael Grandner. So I think we're needing we a lead singer soon, but we'll, we'll, I'll keep an eye out for um, quality candidates on that role. All right. Well, let's transition to more of the kind of research side of things. We'll play our favorite game keyword association and I got to say, listeners, Michael has no idea what I'm about to throw at him. I just created these about 20 minutes ago, legitimately. Uh, so these are hot off the press uh, and mirroring word association. I'm just going to throw a word or a phrase at Michael and see what comes to his mind. So, Michael, are you ready for the keyword association? So what am I supposed to say when you say a word? Just like a phrase, a word, an idea, or what? Whatever comes no to your mind. The first thing okay. that comes to your mind. All right. All right. I'm excited to tap into this brain. All right. First, first keyword association, sleep measurement. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is this idea, the idea that there, we don't actually measure sleep directly ever. Um, it's, we don't have sleep measurement per se. We have sleep estimation. That's what we have. Um, and, and you know, th- that's the idea that comes to mind is that we're, we're constantly in pursuit of better sleep measurement. Agreed. Validity. What does that mean? Um, and so, so yeah, so validity, I, I said, the, the, the phrase that comes to mind is in who, where, under what circumstances. So I think you mean performance. Well said. And I think we're going to circle back to that one a little bit later as we dive okay. deeper into the weeds gold standard um yeah so gold standard you know is it gold or is it the standard or is it both is it just the standard for now right uh 
always difficult to, to is gold in that. quotes is, is gold in air quotes or or or, or in all capital letters i mean in the modern age should we be looking for the bitcoin standard i've no, definitely digressed please not there. yeah probably not <laughs> all right next one here michael commercially available tools um what does that does that mean does that mean that my mother can buy them and 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 not just researchers like what how does what does that have to do with how good something is who who's allowed to purchase it and how much it costs and what stores it's at what does that have to do with measurement well, at least that's, that's, that's that. what i free associate to fair enough i like the free association last one here for you personalization personalization um so what I free associate to with personalization is the fact that that sleep is highly personal and, and my sleep, you know, the, the factors that underlie my sleep might be different from yours. It might be different from someone else and also might be different from my own sleep yesterday. And so, and so personalization, I think, um, is this idea of embracing reality that, that we don't live in a cookie cutter world. Brilliant. Uh, we are not, applying one size fits all approaches anymore, or hopefully. And that's a nice transition into today's focus. Uh, To the listeners out there, you were primed in our kind of orientation to today's topic. But we're going to focus on one of uh, Michael's investigations is one of his 80 billion investigations, but one that's recently (laughs) published in the journal sleep, entitled performance, not validity, performance of a multi sensor smart ring to evaluate sleep in-lab and home-based evaluation of generalized and personalized algorithms. So to set the stage here, I'm going to ask uh, Michael some questions. We'll provide kind of a 10,000-foot view of the investigation, and then we'll dive a bit deeper into the weeds, uh, some broad questions, kind of the landscape of wearable technology and other commercially available technology and some some things within that as well. So, Michael, just to kind of set the stage here. Sure. Um, we're focusing on a device called the Happy Ring, I think, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What led you to this investigation? Um, the guy. So, the the company that makes this ring is is one that I've had on radar for a while because um, one of the people who runs the company actually had um, developed some technology a few years earlier looking at hydration, and I always thought that was really kind of cool. And we were in contact back in the day. And then we were talking about the sleep, this, this product that he was interested in developing was that, that could do more than just measure sleep, but he was really inspired to, to use measurement as the first step in this tool to sort of improve people's lives multidimensionally. And, and um, without getting too into it, he, he really seemed to be earnest in wanting to do the right thing in terms of developing this device. And so they asked me, it's like, Hey, can you can you help us figure out how to um, how to? I, they're like, I think we have something really great here. How do we show this to everybody? And I said, Well, what you need is you need a research study that could do it. And he's like, Well, could you do it? I'm like, Well, possibly, but I know you're just a startup and you don't have a lot of money and resources, so um, I can help you figure out a way to do something feasible. And so, you know, to this day, I've received zero dollars from them. It's not, this is not sponsored. It was, it was, um, they said, I I really, we really want to do this right. I said, look, if you follow my advice and design the study exactly as I tell you and get it IRB approved, 
have it run through whatever lab you want to run it through, make sure you have all the quality control, uh, and you run it exactly as I tell you to, um, and give me full access to the data and unlimited ability to publish whatever I want with no restrictions, um, I'll, I'll do that for you. Um, again, I, you know, they didn't pay me anything, but you know, he really seemed sincere about wanting to do the right thing. And I, I'm a sucker for people wanting to do the right thing uh, and help people. So, um, so that's what happened. And so I designed, uh, I, they said, well, if you had to design the, the, the best study you could think of with unlimited resources, knowing we have very limited resources, but if you could design anything, what would it look like? And I said, well, we need to have it relative to in-lab polysomnography because that's the gold standard in quotes, golden quotes. Um, and because that, that's the standard by which everything else is being evaluated. So you, so you have to know what it, what it looks like there, but people aren't going to be wearing these things in the lab. Most of the time, most people don't sleep in a lab every night, you know, sleep researchers seem to forget this, but actually most people don't live their lives in a laboratory. So we also wanted to measure it at home. Um, and then, and he's like, well, I think our device is, is the best, um, cause of what we're doing is different. Um, what values would we need to say that ours was the best? And I said, it's not about the values you need. It's that you need to compare against the other. You need to have everyone wearing all of the devices at the same time in the same person on the same night under the same conditions. Uh, that way you're comparing apples to apples. And he's like, okay. And so they did. Um, and so that's what they did. And they ran a study in home and in the lab using um, their device as well as um, a few other devices, four other devices. And, um, and then we looked at the data and we looked at it, to be totally honest, we looked at it very honestly and transparently. And, um, and in the paper tried to be extremely transparent in terms of what we were in terms of publishing everything. Yeah, and that came through. There was not any hand waving in the paper at all. Everything was very clear. And as someone who's performed some of these evaluation studies, I was so impressed by the layers, if you will, of evaluation, whether it's the in-lab, as you mentioned, the comparison against other clinically utilized tools like the ActiWatch as well. That seems to be kind of the general framework is to yeah. do some sort of actigraphy and PSG comparison. But you also went beyond that. Yeah. And there was, I think, four or five other commercially available devices your very common relied upon devices that have also gone through a lot of rigorous evaluation. And yep. you compared outside of laboratory conditions to another commercially available device, the dream headband. I think the dream right. two, which is an EEG based device. And I think that has a lot of utility here because that may be a measure that, or I guess a signal that's missing in a lot of these devices. Yeah. It's very helpful and may capture some of the actual unique shortcomings of these devices when it comes to specificity and wake detection. So I just thought like the yeah. comprehensiveness of this was remarkable. And yeah. um, shout out to Happy for uh, for being involved and wanting to play the game, I think, appropriately. Yeah. They wanted to do it. They wanted to do it right. I said, well, if you want to do it right. So because the, the other thing is we didn't just compare against in lab and compare against at home. We also said, how did the... How did the performance not just differ between in lab and at home, but compared to the different approaches, knowing that the dream headband is EEG, but it's not the same as a PSG. So how did 
what did the dream record differently from the in-lab PSG? How did they actually differ from each other? So that when you're comparing, when you're looking at, so did the dream record more or less of any particular sleep continuity or sleep stage variable, so which might throw off the degree of, of that it would be predicted? Because if you're changing the denominator in something, you might change the, the degree of predictability. So, so we also compared... How did actually those two compare with each other? Are were they were, were they equal? And they were actually pretty similar, but not exactly the same. And then you could evaluate it on its merits. That was the idea. It's like let's just be open, transparent, do the right thing, and let the data speak for itself. I love it. And truth be told, um, this paper really caught my attention because of the uniqueness of the actual algorithms themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, many, many of the products available, I mean, they kind of live under a black box, so it's not really known what's going on per se, but I generally believe that they're more kind of standardized, universal, generalized, one sits, one size fits all algorithms. And it seems to me based on this paper that there was that algorithm, there's the generalized approach, but there's yeah. also a personalized algorithm yeah. that allows the algorithm to learn and adapt to the actual individual who's using or wearing the device. What an amazing concept. Did, was that something that you were really attracted to? Yeah, especially because, so so my graduate school advisor was Dan Kripke, who did a lot of the, the initial work on developing some of the first published algorithms for actigraphy back in the day. And this was the 1980s and, and like 90s where, where companies outside of like ambulatory monitoring and, and mini emitter, a lot of these, a lot of the companies that had deeper pockets, like these were small companies, the companies with deeper pockets and, and, and banks of computer scientists or whatever didn't exist. And, you know, forget windows 95. These were DOS. These were, they're going on DOS based computers, you know, like the, 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 the computing power really wasn't there. The devices themselves weren't digital. They were analog. And I think like, you know, they would have like 64 kilobytes of memory on them. So you're like, you're talking about technology that was developed for that time. And in that time, it was, uh, well, what can we make out of these movement counts and, and these signals? And so what they, the best they could come up with was sort of a prediction algorithm. And that worked. But like signal, signal detection technology has advanced a lot since then. But the sleep field really never did, you know, we were very content to keep what we had because it worked well enough. While the computer science people are like, why are you still doing it that way? You know, and, and what we're essentially doing to, for, for all the sleep people out there is they're essentially bandpass filters. There was a great paper that came out recently that like actually made that case that all the actigraphy scoring, they're all essentially bandpass filters that are all mostly similar to each other because they all work mostly the same way. And so then you get these newer companies that are like, okay, we're not sleep people. We're coming into sleep from, from a signal processing background. And we're looking at you guys like, why are you still doing it that way? That's the old way. We haven't been doing that forever. We have better ways of, of predicting things. And it's just, you know, as a field, we're very, we're very skeptical of new, new ideas and new things, especially when it's companies doing it, not just academics doing it, but, but we're not, we don't have sleep computer scientists in that way. So we don't have that coming from academia. So it's coming from industry because that's where it is. So anyway, so then there was this idea of the personalized algorithm, which was, 
recognizes something. If you look at the original, the first published um, sleep scoring uh, validation paper, um, you'll, what you'll see is, and there's a table in that paper that has never been replicated in another paper since, of how well did this, did this scoring perform in older people versus younger people, um, people who were longer sleepers versus shorter sleepers, if you have a different denominator, people who had hard-to-score records and people who had easier-to-score PSG records. Like, why did we forgot that, like, even humans can't agree? You know, if, if the humans couldn't agree, why did we think the machine was going to figure out which what it was? So, like, these sort these ideas that even with there's even within records, there's characteristics of records that might change what the correct algorithm should be. And then later there were out specific algorithms for older and versus younger and, and et cetera, just showing that, you know, maybe there isn't just a one size fits all algorithm. Maybe for a blunt instrument, it's fine, you know, but you know, if you've got a shotgun, you just aim it in the right direction and you're mostly fine. You're going to probably hit something, but as the technology gets more precise, you know, maybe we need we, we have the capability of adding precision. And so they had this idea of this personalized algorithm. And what it was, essentially, was that, well, the algorithm might be different night to night, might be different person to person. And based in the algorithm is a process for figuring out how the algorithm should be tweaked. Um, what exactly that is, is still pretty black boxed. Um, but the concept... I mean, anyone could really implement that concept. I mean, we do this anyway when we're scoring sleep. It's like, well, if we see something, if we see faster frequency activity and it, depending on where in the night it is, we might be more inclined to think that it's REM versus stage one versus stage two. Like where in the night is it? Um, you know, so all of these sorts of, you know, if someone has insomnia, we might interpret fast frequency activity slightly different. Or if somebody is highly sleep deprived, or if someone has sleep apnea, we might inter we might see different waveforms and and score stuff like because we use our judgment because we know not every record is identical. And so they're like, well, why don't we do that with the scoring algorithms? Let's we think we came up with a way of figuring out how the algorithm should be dynamic. It's, and so I'm like, oh, so is it learning from someone for a few days and then applies? But like, no, 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 it's within the night. Um, it, it uses characteristics of the night itself, and, and that's disclosed in the paper. What exactly it uses, again, you know, they wouldn't even tell me, but they don't have to. That's fine. That's, you know, there's a part of this where, which is allowed to be trade secrets. But what is it that the algorithm is doing? I, I wanted to put in as much in the paper as possible, and that's sort of what we said was, it uses characteristics of the night to dynamically alter the algorithm from night to night and from part of the night to part of the night, which, I mean, again, anyone who wants to make a new algorithm, that's a concept that they can use. It's the same inputs. But yeah, that's what I, that's what I liked about it, that it sort of iterated on our idea of what an algorithm could be. Brilliant. And it is not just the future. It really should be the now. And as you yeah. said, like we do this, I was running a research MSLT last Friday, a week ago, and we run bio cows before any sort of nap. Why? Because we also want to see what their EEG, this individual's EEG looks like with their eyes closed for 30 seconds. So we know what alpha activity looks like or whatever it may be. So that when I do stage their sleep, we can tailor it to that individual a little bit better. And so it's not a novel concept. It just hasn't really been integrated yet 
to our knowledge. And so I got really excited that this is something on the forefront of the commercial kind of domain and that they're running with it. And yes, I would love them to release their algorithms, but I right, understand. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, it did better. That was that was the thing that I was super excited about. Like, it was better. I love that. And so just before we get into the deeper discussion, you know, what what did you find, just generally speaking, with the, the Happy Ring itself, this novel device, from a generalized and personalized approach? So what we found was, like, using the generalized approach, looking at sleep versus wake, it performed, you know, about as, like, I would say in roughly the same ballpark as a lot of the other devices do, because they're using the same signals. It's movement, it's heart rate. Um, they also had um, galvanic skin response. So like how much, how useful that was, I'm not sure. But if you look at the numbers, um, I, I think it's safe to say that the numbers aren't terribly shocking, that like this, you know, it definitely puts it in the category of the good ones. But what was different with the personalized was that, um, so we talk about sensitivity and specificity as, as how we look at this thing, where accuracy is actually not terribly interesting in terms of, it, it's interesting from a commercial standpoint, but to understand a device, accuracy is not a useful measure, simply because um, if most people have healthy sleep and they have a 90% sleep efficiency and you have a broken device that just scores every epic of sleep, you're going to have 90% agreement and that sounds good. Um, but it be, because of that, you have you need to have high degree of sensitivity, which which is detecting sleep epics correctly. But you also need that specificity, which is detecting wake epics correctly. And because you have a state that's defaulting default to sleep, you're going to have devices that seem more accurate if they overscore sleep. So then, which is what happens a lot of the time here. Um, and after Olivia Walsh gave her talk in our seminar, I think I need to stop calling it sensitivity and specificity and call it. What, what was she calling it? Like sleep accuracy and wake accuracy. Um, but what we found was still you, you had high sensitivity, which means like, yeah, it found almost all the sleep epics asleep. Um, but it had much higher specificity compared to, compared to the other devices. Its ability to discern wake from sleep got way better because it used, because clearly it was using other information to, to base a decision on. And that was really the take-home message for me, that using this approach um, cracks that glass ceiling of specificity that all these other devices seem to be running up against. Maybe the reason isn't an insufficient signal or a bad algorithm. We've, maybe we've optimized the algorithms as good as we can. It's just that's the limitation of a one-size-fits-all approach. And maybe you can crack that ceiling if you if you think about it a little differently and and add a new wrinkle in there, which is having that dynamic algorithm. Well said, and that was one of my biggest take homes from the investigation itself was this personalized nature seemingly really does a better job at improving upon probably the glaring shortcoming right now in these devices, which is its ability to detect motionless wake. And generally speaking, a lot of these devices, you said it well the most modern are very comparable where they often fall in this like 40 to at best 50% detection yeah. abilities. But I think it was upwards of like 70% specificity yeah. or wake accuracy, if you will, yeah. which is just yeah. remarkable. Um, yeah. And so it clearly had much benefit there. And for the listeners out there, I encourage you to go actually look at the paper because the violin plots, the graphs themselves, 
tell the whole story when it comes to the kind of, I guess, error bars, if you will, the reliability of the personalized algorithm. It made it so much more um, consistent. The divergence was so much more consistent, kind of regardless of how you wanted to look at it, whether it was quantification of sleep or classification of sleep. Um, and I thought that really sent, like, solidified the message. Um, we're, yeah. we're better, we're refining the ability here. Um, and it was, it, it was transparent. Yeah, and that's the, the thing about this paper that I'm, I'm especially proud of, especially a paper where, you know, most of the rest of the co-authors actually work for the company. So, like, there's always this issue of bias, of potential bias. But, like, we worked really hard because they wanted they, – they're like, we want to be honest. We, want, we believe in this. We don't – we're not trying to hide anything or pull anything on anybody – and which is the only reason I agreed to work with them anyway, because that's that's how I roll and that's how I work. So so we tried to just be as open and transparent as possible with all of the data. And I think that that it speaks for itself. Beautiful. And I think it's time to dive deeper into the weeds. Do you have your weed whacker ready? Sure. I'm in Arizona, Tucson. We don't have weeds here. We just have dirt. I was going to say, you're not allowed to chop down a saguaro, right? Aren't they protected right, right. in some well, ways? For, you're not even allowed to move them. They're, they're extremely protected. They're extremely protected. All right. Well, we will navigate the saguaro forest. Uh, there we go. You know, appropriately. <laughs> I think the one area I want to jump off with, Michael, and I think you showed your cards earlier a little bit when discussing this. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, and this is this has been top of mind for me for a while. This evaluation versus validation, yeah, and they often get thrown around interchangeably. And um, a colleague, Max Days and Body, and um, yeah, Orpho Buxton, they published a recent paper in Sleep Health, kind of on this topic. And I know that you're kind of a champion of a certain perspective here, so I kind of want to give you the microphone. But I just want to kind of open the door with. When you think about the term validated, right? what does that mean to you? Is something ever validated? Well, I mean, so if you buy a bathroom scale from Target and you take it home and you stand on it and the number it gives you, do you say, hmm, I don't know if that's correct. You know, you want to you wanna assume that. And then if you get off it and then you stand on it again, you know, the number should be the same unless you did something weird. Um, and then if you get on another scale that you that you bought from the store next door, it should say the same number. So to me, validity means you're measuring what you think you're measuring. Uh, reliability is that it's the same every time, even if it's incorrect. But validity is, e even if it's a little unreliable, it's measuring what you think you're measuring. And it's one thing to validate a measurement device that's objective. That's, that's um, where you, you know, what is it? We have a gold standard. You could make it gold because we know how much gold weighs. Like you can, you can have a gold standard for measuring. We have, you have standard weights and measures um, that's easy to validate. But with sleep, we don't have a direct measure. So valid has sort of has a lowercase v with sleep because um, where it's valid in that, in that is it measuring what we think we're measuring but we don't actually know we can't measure sleep directly anyway so what we're saying is does it seem to measure what um, sleep to the same degree that other things that we kind of really accept also seem to probably measure sleep mostly 
And so, like, there's all these qualifiers in there. So, but still, like, you could say something's a validated device if, you know, traditionally you could say something's a validated device if um, you tested it against the gold, you know, the gold standard and it measured whatever it's measuring. It's pretty much the same thing as whatever that gold standard measure was measuring. But in recent years, and actually, this all started for me, I mean, besides conversations about validity as a process in graduate school, as opposed to an, an event, um, it was really that that um, commentary by um, Kathy Goldstein and Chris Deppner in Sleep in, in response to the Mangini paper where Max Disembody was the senior author on about that, that, that framework for evaluating wearables. And they had the, this... Um, in their commentary, they said, let's stop using the term validation and, and call it performance. And I remember reading that commentary when it came out and said, yes, exactly. Perfect. Correct. That's what we should be doing. Because like I would keep going up in talks and like other people, we would say like, you know, remember validation is a process, not an event. But then you had these commercial companies and stuff saying ours is a validated device. But what it, but what they meant, what they what they meant was Somebody tested it relative to a gold standard in otherwise totally healthy people with no sleep problems in a laboratory, and it generally pretty much recorded pretty much what the polysomnogram did on a sleep versus wake basis. So does that mean it works in the home? Does it mean it works in people with sleep disorders? Does it mean it works in people of different age groups? Does it mean that all of the other metrics that the device gives you in terms of your recovery and needs and whatever are those correct? It doesn't mean any of those things. But then they use the term the device is valid as sort of this umbrella term that everything underneath the device is automatically okay and approved and with a seal of approval of science. And that to, to, to those of us in, in that world, it comes across as misleading, intentionally or unintentionally. I'm not ascribing any blame here. I'm just saying that, it, that to us, that, that's not exactly what it means. And so this idea of, well, it's, you're not really validating it, you're evaluating it under certain conditions, in certain people, at a certain time, using a certain software version that may be updated a week from now, that might make it slightly different. And so it's not, a, it's not like your bathroom scale that doesn't change. Um, it's the same one, assuming. I'm making assumptions. Most of the time, it's the same one. Uh, bathroom scales don't have firmware updates usually. So, um, so that, that's why, and, and so, so when Orfeu and Max and me and, and Meredith and Susan, and then the, the group of us were putting together this, um, this position paper for the journal sleep health of let's create a new article type, which is sort of evaluating technology and let's make it streamlined cut the fluff that nobody actually cares about anyway, get to the meat so we can report it well. But then we ask the question of what actually goes into these? You know, what should um, such a paper have to be transparent, to be correct? And actually in the title, it's performance evaluations and then parentheses previously, and it quotes validation. Um, that that was, I, I definitely have to give Orfeo credit for that one because that, that's, that's such a him thing to do is to put it in the title so that it's searchable under PubMed. If someone looks for the term validation and sleep and wearables in a title, they'll find it. But signaling loud and clear that like validation is not the term we're going with. 
um, because it's the one we're all using. And let's see if we can change our lexicon. But that's why, where on the one hand, when you're talking about a sleep wearable, validation isn't so simple as with a bathroom scale, where you just have to put weights of different weights on it and see if it's correct. Because sleep is so dynamic and, and changeable in different situations, and we don't know if those devices respond to those. So we're not validating it so much as we're evaluating its performance under a certain set of conditions. Does that mean you can never use it in other conditions? No. I mean, you have a device that was tested in 30 healthy people um, who don't have a ton of medical history. Does that mean it's useless in insomnia? No. It just means that we don't know how useless it is in insomnia, but doesn't mean you can't use it. It just means, well, use that with a little bit of a grain of salt to keep your eye out for abnormalities and anomalies. Well, you stole basically every one of my follow-up questions on that Sorry. one. So now you nailed it. You, you, you did it perfectly. And I mean, I guess the, the big question here then is, all right, so we have this evaluation study showcasing pretty promising characteristics from the happy ring and um, especially from the personalized algorithms. As a researcher, I see this and go, hey, I should probably put this in my research study. This looks great. Is that fair? Like, what do we do now with a single evaluation? Yeah. Should companies stop? What do we do at this point to kind of peel back the layers? So first of all, I would say um, we need more of these personalized and dynamic algorithms, clearly. I mean, clearly, in my mind, this is one of the next step, next evolutionary steps for our sleep-wake detection. Um, and I'm saying sleep wake, wake detection, not sleep stages, because that's a whole other can of worms. Um, sleep stages are, are in peripherally based states. We're just guessing at them anyway, at best. But um, I, I fine. I'll peek open the can of worms and then shut it. So, um, so I clearly, you know, there's there's no there's nothing stopping someone creating a personalized algorithm for an act to watch either. Um, you know, that raw data is available. That unlike many of these other devices. Um, the raw data is totally available. So if someone wants to make personalized algorithms, go right ahead. They can now. I mean, they always could. But now there's sort of like a call for it. Um, what other signals can you include? Just because the, the, the device only measures movement, maybe if you have concurrent heart rate data, if you have concurrent other signals, you know, um, there's all kinds of who knows what else you can do. Um the other thing is, you know, this was this was this was the first study using this device, and because of that, we deliberately didn't, you know, we deliberately set it up to um, not include people with lots of sleep disorders and other sleep problems, not because not because we necessarily wanted it to, you know, be in the squeaky clean environment that's not generalizable, but. If we did include people with lots of sleep problems in here for the first time this device was evaluated and it didn't do great, is it because of the sample or is it because of the device? Well, at least now we know under controlled conditions, under under relatively unobscure, if, if it's a clear day, you can see. Um, can you see as well on a cloudy day? That, that I think would be the next next implementation of this. You know, next time someone is thinking of using this in in a po in a population where it's a little more of a cloudy day, I would I would say test it out first and see if the numbers look the same. I love that analogy. 
and with your permission, which I'm granting myself, I'm going to steal that. I'm going of to course. steal that analogy. That's beautiful. Um, and you you touched on two areas I wanted to get to, and I do want to be mindful of time and things like that. But I just want to kind of talk about relations with the commercial domain industry. And yeah. in this particular investigation, they came to you, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they they seem to you know, have their ducks in a row and, and wanted to play the game appropriately. But that's not always the case. And I have my yeah. own experiences there. Um, even in this scenario, too, kind of what you're sharing in some ways is, yes, this was one study and a productive one for the product that you're trying to market. But it should not stop there in some ways if you want to showcase more abilities, you know, translating it to yeah. an insomnia population or a more diverse sample, whatever it may be. How do we kind of get that message across that one is not enough, that there needs to be more? Because I think companies are like, I got my evaluation study. I showcased reasonable agreement with PSG. I'm good. Um, I would actually, first of all, I mean, I'm in totally total agreement. And, and exactly where you're leading, I'm happy to go. But I think everyone listening actually could already see where that's going. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pivot and say, if you were that company, how many studies is enough? Like, do you need a study in insomnia? Do you need a study in apnea? Do you need a study in old people? Do you need a study in young people? Do you need a study in in on the north in the, in northern latitudes versus southern like? And and so I, I think you make a good point that this is really only the beginning, but there never is an end. And so, what does one do? Um, some companies take the approach of. If enough people use it, it'll create the literature base so we don't have to fund the study to do it. Um, you know, I, I think that's unfortunate, but I think that's also true. There's there's certainly some devices out there that got essentially got their, their performance evaluations mostly for free or at least donated devices. Um, here it was less of a cost because they didn't. I didn't have to write a grant for this. I didn't get a grant for this. You know, university didn't get any indirects on this. This was just me donating some time for what for what I perceived to be the greater good. Um, but, but yeah, I mean that's a that's an important question. I think the answer to that is well, who are you? Who do you first of all as a company? Who are you actually going to be marketing to if you're a commercial interest? If you're a researcher and you want to say hey, this device looks like it's pretty good. I'm not sure about this particular subsample. I think it's sort of up to you as the researcher to, to, to do some of that. I think um, our generation has gotten a little bit lazy in terms of measurement. I've always been a bit of a measurement nerd. And and this whole idea of... So one of the things, hearkening back to Michael Perlis's undergraduate sleep course, uh, one of the things he said in the very beginning uh, of the semester, and I will never forget this ever, 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 and he used to say that the first three rules of science are, number one, know your measures, know your measures, and know your measures. Because if you don't, you make bad decisions, you make bad interpretations, and you take, thing, take numbers for granted that you don't understand where they're coming from or what they mean. Especially in sleep, there's this idea that polysomnography is the sort of end-all, be-all of what sleep is. It's not. It just is what it is. It's not anything it isn't. And... Knowing your measures, I think, is something, you know, as someone who does a lot of border health research, well, we do a lot of measure translation. And what a lot of people who translate measures don't understand is that translation doesn't mean run it through Google Translate. 
or even just send it to a medical translator. We don't translate measures without actually the first pass translation actually is someone we always use someone unaffiliated with research, someone from the community who has no stake in this game. If you they read this, what should it look like a bilingual person who could translate it? Then we take it to the study, make sure the concepts translate. Then we go to a translator. Then we actually focus group it with people from the community who are bilingual. I say, look, if I gave you both these things, do they say this? Do they measure the same thing? Would you answer the same to all of these questions or would you answer differently based on what language it is? So we, we go through all of that because I care that we're measuring things correctly. And, and I think devices, I think we like things like bioassays, um, devices, sensors. I think we take these things for granted for two reasons. One, because we don't actually understand how they work. Um, and so we don't know how to evaluate whether they're doing what they say they're doing because we don't know what they're doing. They just give us a number and we trust it. Uh, and number two, we're not incentivized to do so. It's like you can't get a grant to develop a measure or test a measure or anything. And usually there's no money to do that. So we have to like cobble stuff together to do it. So I think the system is, is, is set up to actually do bad science because it, it was not set, not set up to do bad science. That's not fair. Uh, the system is not does not incentivize the proper steps to do optimally good science, and that sort of led to this culture. As the world as as technology has gotten more complicated, we sort of we we, we this black boxification of stuff where we don't we we just have to blindly trust things that numbers that come out. I mean, how many people are doing you know? assays of inflammatory cytokines that don't even realize how rhythmic they are. Like, you know, when did you do your IL? What time of day did you take your blood draw for your IL-6 assay? And how long was that person awake beforehand will change the value of your IL-6 assay. So, but do we care? Um, and do we ask these questions? Do we even know? I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, clinically, I get so many patients who are like, I've had this insomnia problem for 10 years. I've seen every doctor. I'm like, well, not a sleep person. And so like, I'm looking at this, like, what time do you take this medication here? What time do you take your bupropion or whatever? Well, you know, I think like, maybe this is what's happening. Maybe you're actually taking your medication at the wrong time. And let's talk to your doc. Let's get in a conversation with your prescribing physician and, and, and ask about this. I'm like, yeah, but no one's raised this as an issue before. I'm like, yeah, but this is a stimulating medication that you're taking at night. Um, maybe that's leading, maybe that's contributing to your insomnia. Like, couldn't be. Someone, some doctor would have looked it up and said there's no counter. Like, yeah, it's not conflicting with any medication you're taking. And this is a known side effect. So it's not a problem in their mind, but it is for you. And so this whole idea of the lens you look at things through can sometimes tell you about what you're measuring and what you're doing. And I think... I love original sources. I love going back, like digging in whose site, like where did this come from? Where did that come from? Let's trace it all the way back to what the original source was and what did they actually do and what did they actually say? I love digging in these, these original sources because I want to know how it actually works. Because if I don't know how it works, I don't know what the numbers mean. And if I don't know what the numbers mean, I'm just trusting them blindly. And I could be wrong. I mean, it's beautifully said. And we'll be navigating down kind of spurious rabbit holes, making imprecise wrong decisions medically. We have to know what we're measuring. We have to believe that the measurement is correct. 
and that takes rigorous evaluation in many ways yeah. too, uh, which is kind of the purpose of these studies. And um, kind of thinking about two questions that I want to ask you to close down this manuscript, I think I'm going to blend them together in some ways, Michael. Um, sure. So we recognize here that this personalization component is critically beneficial for resolving, or maybe not resolving, but reducing one of the major shortcomings of these devices. But clearly there are some other evolutions that could come online. You know, you mentioned the dream headband has EEG. Well, a lot of these wearable devices, most to all do not have EEG. And it's right. always baffled me that we don't have some sort of like Bluetooth sensor we can self-apply that can just yeah. provide some sort of crude EEG that could help move the ball a little bit. So I want to ask you this, thinking yeah. about the findings of this investigation and all the totality of the investigations, what should we be thinking about as a field to really progress these devices so that they're not just extremely useful in the kind of recreational sense, and they're not just sufficient for research, but they also have application for clinical use. What should we really be thinking about here? So three things that I would like, I would, I wish people would think about. Number one, um, first of all, a bathroom scale is not a weight loss program. Just because you have a measurement device doesn't mean you have an intervention. And I think there's a, at least in the, in, in the commercial space, there's a big confusion in this area that this device will help you sleep better. How? Well, it'll tell you all about your sleep. Well, what'll that do? It's like, well, it'll give you the information you need to make better choices. Will it? And how will it get me? How will it know what choices I need to make? And how will it tell those to me? And what will I do with that information? And is it actionable? And even if it is actionable, do I know what actions to take? I mean, like, there's a lot of steps in there that get assumed. Um, and I think, I mean, we're talking about this just in terms of measurement and accuracy, but people don't buy these and use them outside of research purely for measurement. They want to get value out of that, not just pure knowledge. And you know, a bathroom scale is not a weight loss program. Just because you measure something doesn't mean you're affecting meaningful change. Some people getting on the scale is enough. For most people, it is not. As a health behavior person, I'm not an engineer. Um, I can't build one of these things, but I'm a behavior person. I know that just building it isn't enough. Um, and I, so that's the first, first most important thing. The second thing, uh, the second idea, if, if you're giving me a soapbox to, to stand on, is when the if you go back, to the original, again, I love original sources. If you go back to the original publications from the 30s and the 40s on, on, on the sleepy EG, what did they validate that against? Nothing. They made it up. Well, observation. Clinical observation has always been the gold standard. And no, but what they did was they saw these patterns in a signal. First of all, EEG is still, yes, it's 1930s technology. We should, we should, why are we still shackled to an EEG? But that's a whole other thing. Shouldn't we have something better by now? But moving past that. Um, what they saw, they saw the signal. And the human eye and the human brain saw a pattern. They couldn't figure out quite what the pattern was. But, you know, we saw that there were these cycles. And we sort of broke it into pieces. 
and we're like, this, this looks like fast frequency, low amplitude stuff. This one's also fast frequency, low amplitude, but it has a different flavor to it. And, and it's got these other things in it. Then this one is like not fast frequency, not low amplitude. This is, this is high amplitude, lower frequency. And then stage four, which we got rid of, cause I don't know, I don't know why, maybe just cause you can't use it to diagnose sleep apnea. I don't know, but, but it's like all slow frequency and high amplitude. Like this looks categorically different. Um, and then REM sleep came in as something that was categorically different. But sleep stages, they're not biology. We made them up. They're a human interpretation of nature. We created these categories because the human brain can't hold a thousand. Maybe there's, maybe there's 764 sleep stages. We just don't know that. You know, we've lumped them together. It's like depression. Depression is one word. that, And anyone who's treated depression clinically knows depression is not one thing. So, I mean, sleep stages are useful. The EEG signal is even more useful going beyond sleep stages. I, this is why I, I care more about power spectral analysis and, 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 and power and waveforms than I do what of one of four stages this person, what, what, what arbitrary rules you followed to get there. Um, and then we get this thing where we put a peripheral signal to try and guess at what those sleep stages are. Why? Sleep stages are a categorical scheme for bucketing patterns of waveforms in the outer layers of the cortex that are giving you information about patterns in, in cortical synchrony versus desynchrony that might give hints at other things, but that's not what they are. They're buckets of, of degrees of cortical synchrony in certain parts of the brain only on the outer layer of the cortex over time. Why do you, why do you need, you know, so at the risk, yeah, there's also peripheral changes in sleep and they're systematic. Also, there's, there's clearly these cycles and, and they're sort of going together. And, but why are you trying to guess at what's happening? Like the, the, the people who are coming up with sleep stages weren't like, you know what, we need to map these on to changes in muscle movements and, or whatever, or, or, you know, if we're not, if we can't predict stuff exactly with them, they're just not good. No, they are what they are. And I think rather than try and use these peripheral signals to, you know, stop trying to build a crappy polysomnogram on, on the wrist or on the finger, because at best it's going to be a crappy polysomnogram. And then people are going to tell your device to tell you your device isn't great because you set a bar that didn't make sense to set. You set a bar that was unachievable at predicting what was happening at cortical desynchrony on the outer layers of the cortex by measuring changes in like heart rate variability. Yeah, you're close because it's, you're, you're measuring an echo of the same two. You're, there's two echoes of the same signal that might sound similar to each other, but they're both different echoes. Why don't you look for what other signals you can get, you know, rather than try and whether try and map the first step, map it on. Show that it's possible to map it on at least roughly. That means that you're capturing something from a similar source, but don't stop there. Have that be your starting point. What are all kind? What if there's all kinds of signals you can get peripherally or even centrally with other with other other signals that the EEG can't even pick up? I mean, this is this is me speaking as an insomnia researcher and insomnia clinician. PSG is a terrible measure of insomnia. If, if PSG is perfect measure of sleep, it, sh it wouldn't be such a terrible measure of insomnia. What if there are better measures that capture the most common sleep disorder um, 
in other signals. We just aren't looking for them because we're so busy trying to, sorry, I spent way too long on that. But but I, I feel like this is a problem we have in our field. We're so shackled to what already is. We start, we, we forget about where we're trying to go. And like, let's let's be a little bolder and and take some more risks and and dive into those signals. So that was so the, that was the first one. I, I said there was going to be three things, and so I got to come up with what the third thing's going to be. Um, and if I had to come up with the third thing, I would say, hearkening back to something you said earlier, sort of another pet peeve of mine of like commercial grade versus research grade. It's not a that's not a continuum. Those are two different axes. Those are, those aren't the two ends of one axis. Just because you can buy something on Amazon doesn't mean it doesn't work. Um, just because you can go into a store and buy something, just because it costs a tenth of what another device costs or 10 times more, doesn't mean it's necessarily better or worse. Like it's it's either a thoroughly tested, um, relatively accurate sleep sensing device, or it's not. It's like stop biasing against what's commercially available or not. I think that's just academic snobbery. I love it. And no apologies necessary for the soapbox. That's why we're here on the SRS podcast. And truth be told, we gave the listeners what we promised because early on we said we were going to ruffle some feathers and we circled back to really uh, hit on that at the end. And I think those are all critically important points. And, you know, Michael, I think it does really tie into kind of my closing question. So I may ask it a little bit differently because okay. clearly you're, you're very compelled by measurement uh, yeah. and you have a remarkably impressive brain with a lot of not just depth, but breadth as well. So I'm going to ask you to rein in the breadth component and just think about okay. depth here. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. If you were on afforded unlimited funding, no constraints, no real issues to handle from a logistics standpoint, what area, whether disorder, whether advancing measurement, whatever it may be, within sleep and circadian research, what topic would you focus on? Sleep exists outside the cell membrane. Sleep exists inside the cell membrane, but it mostly exists outside the cell membrane. Sleep exists in context. The context in which people sleep, I think, is critically important in ways we don't really understand. And if we are going to know more about how sleep impacts health, you said no breadth, but I'll say broadly, if we're gonna, if, if for all of those questions, if we're gonna know how sleep makes an impact, and if we're gonna know how we can impact sleep to make an impact, we have to understand what, what it is we're actually dealing with. We Sleep isn't just a dial we can turn. Sleep is something that um, that that is contextually determined. And I think we just need a much better understanding of what are all of those contextual factors and how do they directly and indirectly influence sleep so that we can better understand, A, what sleep even is in context. Um, do sleep stages even matter in the real world? Like, I mean, yes, they do, clearly, but... Do they mean something different when you measure them weeks and months at a time versus one night in a lap? Like, how does context matter? Who you are, where you are, where you come from, what you did yesterday, what you ate for lunch. How do all of these contextual factors matter? Which ones matter? And how can we map that on to the actual biology of sleep so we know how to optimize our interventions in a real world setting? Beautiful. 
Uh, and I look forward for you changing your entire research program or programs to focus on that singular yet slightly broad topic <laughs> at the same time. I can't, you, you, can't, you can't rein me in. I'm sorry. I don't want to, Michael. And you've given me a lot of food for thought to chew on as I go on my evening walk here in a bit. And I'm sure the listeners as well have a lot to think about now. So I truly thank you so much for taking time to digitally sit down with me. You've been a wealth of wisdom. Uh, and naturally, you. I must thank you on behalf of the field for all that you do. And for those out there that want to learn more about Michael or get in touch, well, I must steer you to basically every social media outlet you can find, but principally Twitter, very active there. Uh, we'll probably put his handle in the show notes with Michael's permission. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he has no issues there. And Michael, again, yeah. thank you so much. Be well and enjoy the closing summer of Tucson and the transition to the best time of year, which is fall. Oh, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Ruloff Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.